0: Today I'm concluding our series of talks on topics relating to relationships, sexuality, and identity. One of the most fundamental questions of the human heart is who am I? So I'm choosing to talk about identity last in this series because I believe the question is never far away from uh, conversations about relationships, marriage, singleness, sexuality. We can see these things as a big part of who we are, if not the very thing that defines us. So the topic of identity runs as a thread through all the other talks in this series. Understanding identity is vitally important. If we're to live the full lives that God has designed us to live, living out our sexuality healthily and having flourishing relationships, and it informs how we share the message of the gospel with those around us. So how might we answer the age-old question, who am I? What is my identity? Who and what defines me? As we explore this question, I want to consider three lenses through which we may choose to view our identity. A traditional lens, a modern lens, and through the lens that God gives us in the Bible. Pastor and author from New York, Tim Keller, gives a fascinating perspective on this subject. He points out that as much as we don't like to think that we are influenced by our culture, we are, particularly in the way that our sense of identity is being formed. He identifies identity as a sense of self and a sense of worth. Our sense of self comes from what we are really living for, the highest good in our life. Our sense of worth comes from being validated, you know, that we are living that highest good. So in ancient cultures, the greatest thing to live for was honor. If you are a person of honor, then you put other people before yourself. If you were a married woman, you risked your life having lots of babies so that the tribe could become stronger. If you were a man, you might risk dying in battle protecting the community. So if you were a person of honor, putting the community's interests above your own, then the community validated you, giving you a sense of self and a sense of worth. This meant that your own desires were superseded by your duty and commitment to your community. So in ancient civilizations, the moral good you were serving and the source of validation were outside of you. Parents, family, community, and you prioritize that over your inner life, like your personal desires, dreams, and feelings. Sacrifice and validation was emphasized. We might call that a traditional identity, which has formed most civilizations throughout history. And we still we still see remnants of this today. Uh, almost all of us, in one way or another, seek a sense of self, and a sense of worth through things that are external to us. It may be through our work, or our relationship status, or it might come through our possessions, what kind of house we live in, or even the way we look. We all, to one extent or another, seek a sense of who we are or validation through external things. When I was 17, I began to make jewelry in the workshop at school. I went on to study art and then to do a degree in three-dimensional design, specializing in silversmithing and jewelry. And uh, I worked for a jewelry company for a while, and then I was self-employed as a designer jeweler for another three years. And I made some beautiful, I love doing it. I made some beautiful things. I loved designing and creating for customers unique pieces and things like engagement and wedding rings, which they would treasure for the rest of their lives. People loved my work. One wealthy woman even collected some of my best pieces. I felt validated. I was a jeweler. Nine years in, the Lord called me out of jewelry. And following an announcement that the person we were in partnership was wanting to close the shop, which he owned, I'd had just two weeks to finish the pieces I was working on. And I packed up my career into my toolbox and a metal rack of drawers. And I didn't open, I taped them up, and I didn't open them. They kept moving houses, but I didn't open those drawers again for another 30 years. I then spent six months working with a homeless charity, which housed young people, working with the residents as I coordinated the maintenance of the houses that they lived in. And I remember the quizzical looks and questioning from people, do you just given up? your career, questioning from my uncle in particular, who thought I was throwing away my career for something far less valuable. I wasn't a jeweler anymore, so what was I? Who was I? The fundamental flaw with this traditional view of identity is that we end up looking to things that aren't reliable. So our sense of self fluctuates with our bank balance, career achievements, or relationship status. And the only way to address that feeling of uncertainty and insecurity is to strive to secure those things. Maybe that hearing this today, you realize that you've been striving at work perhaps for years, never feeling fully satisfied and at peace. Or perhaps you've been going from relationship to relationship, but it feels like life is kind of on hold until you find the right person or your life story has been dominated by coming to terms with and living out your sexuality. I believe that there's an invitation today to consider whether the issue is not really about finding the right job or the right relationship, but about finding a true understanding of who you are. So where else can we look to find ourselves? Well, in today's Western culture, An alternative lens has become prevalent where the highest good uh, to live for is determined by you, the individual. The encouragement now is to look inside yourself to find the real you. Nobody else can tell you what's right or wrong for you. You decide based on your own reason, feelings, and emotions. So your own feelings are now the highest authority when it comes to identity. And you are your own validator. No one can tell you whether you're living up to the good that you've decided for yourself. The ultimate good has moved from outward to inward. In traditional cultures, the good was out there, and to be a good person, you sacrificed your own desires to serve the outer good. Now in modernity, it's the opposite. You determine what's good, and you don't sacrifice for it, you find it in your desires. Tim Keller quotes Charles Taylor from his book, Sources of Self, The Making of Modern Identity, The Modern Identity. And this is what Charles Taylor writes. In traditional cultures, you are your duties, and your self-worth depends on the honor your community bestows on you as you sacrifice your desires to fulfill those duties. But in modernity, You are your deepest desires, your dreams and your aspirations, and your self-worth now depends on the dignity you now bestow on yourself as you realize and assert those desires against any claims from outside groups, like family or nation or community or God. So you can see it's the complete opposite In the traditional identity, you look outside to figure out what is the highest good. Then you come inside and argue with your heart and say, heart, you've got to live according to this, not the way you want. In modern times, it's totally different. You go inside and decide who you are and what is right and wrong for you. Then you come outside and argue with society and say, you have to honor me because this is who I am. This is me. There are so many examples of this, but I'll share a few stories with you to illustrate what I mean. An article in the Daily Mail reported this. A Canadian man who was married with seven kids has left his family in order to fulfill his true identity as a six-year-old girl. Now, Stephanie lives with friends who she calls her adoptive mummy and daddy as a six-year-old girl. Dressing in children's clothing and spending her time playing and colouring with her adoptive parents' grandchildren. Fulfilling his true identity. And this is what he sincerely believes. Anthony Econdeo Lennon identifies as mixed race. And last year received a grant of tens of thousands of pounds from the Arts Council England for people of color in theater. He had previously said of himself, my parents are white, and so are their parents, and so are their parents, and so are their parents. But he identified as mixed race because to be fair, he does have some facial features which are not typically white. And as I've watched him talk about his experience, I don't believe he's trying to deceive anyone in order to get the grant. He sincerely believes he is mixed race. He said, when I look in the mirror, I see a black man. It would seem that gender is no longer confined to two options, male and female, observed at birth as it has been in the past, but now has many descriptive descriptors from which individuals can choose to define themselves. I'm told that Facebook recently increased the number of boxes you can tick to select your gender from two to 71. And I understand that complaints were received that this was not enough, so has led Facebook now to offer just male, female, or custom. And our children are having to grapple with these issues. An education program by the BBC, aimed at 9 to 12-year-olds, claims that there are over 100 different types of gender identity. Times columnist Janice Turner, commenting on self-identifying in different ways, captured today's mantra in the phrase, I am who I say I am. In citing these examples, I'm not wanting to communicate anything negative about people who experience a genuine disconnect between things like their perceived gender and their biological sex, or their perceived and actual age, or their perceived an actual race. These issues are very real, and very complex, and my heart goes out to anyone experiencing such disconnects. I'm simply highlighting that all of us exist in a culture like swimmers in the sea, moved by the changing tides as our culture steadily moves us along a journey of self-determination. Influenced by many things, including the media. It's interesting to see the underlying message contained within many films, for instance. In so many, the hero's journey is one of throwing off the restrictive and prescriptive identity that their community or family have imposed upon them and finding their true self. For example, I feel bad about this because it's one of my favorite films. Babe tells the story, the moving story, of a pig who wants to be a sheepdog. Reinforced by the depressing music in scenes where he's told he can't be a sheepdog, to triumphant music when he gets to herd sheep, the underlying narrative, or the clear narrative, is even if you are a pig, if you identify as a sheepdog, then you can be a sheepdog, or at least a sheep pig. (laughs) Elsa in Frozen sings the anthemic theme song, Let It Go. She's throwing off the pressure of others' expectations. Be a good girl, you always have to be. Be the good girl you always have to be. And moves to, I don't care what they're going to say. And then this. To test them. it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through no right no wrong no rules for me I'm free she's saying I'm tired of being a good girl and even though the consequences of my decisions will be devastating in their effects on others I've got to be me that is an extremely powerful narrative written into a key song for the next generation But you might ask, what's so wrong with a bit of self-belief? Well, what's concerning is that, once again, we are ultimately looking towards something that's unreliable to be a steadfast source of security. If we look inside to find our identity, we will find a picture of self that fluctuates with our experiences and feelings, that inflates and deflates with our victories and failures. And while the modern identity might feel liberating, it can also be a tremendous burden on the individual. And it's not as self-defined as we might think it is. The reality is that often the version of us we think we find inside is actually a reflection of what our culture impresses on us. So if our identity doesn't come from external things around us or from inside ourselves, where ultimately might we find our true identity? this is a good place to look. And so we're going to turn to Luke chapter 15, one of Jesus's most famous parables, a story about two sons and a father, which really gives us an insight into a way of viewing identity that corrects the flaws of these two lenses that I've described. So Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. Jesus tells this story. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. So this son evidently was living his own way. He cast off the restraints of what his father and family would have thought about his decisions, and he asserted his freedom from tradition. It was customary to wait for one's father to die before inheriting. In many ways, we could view him as illustrating the modern identity. After a time, penniless and regretful, he realizes that he's lost the right to be treated as a son, but decides to come home anyway and see whether his father might take him back as a servant. So that's the first son illustrating to some extent. The modern identity. So let's have a look at his older brother. The younger brother was being welcomed home with a party. So here we have in verse 25, meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So the father, his father went out and pleaded with him But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. The older brother was evidently well behaved. He had dutifully worked hard in the family's interests, apparently striving for approval. He had been obedient to authority, putting the approval of his father and the community ahead of his own desires. In many ways, we could view him as illustrating the traditional identity. The reality is that both sons were seeking their identity in ways that were thoroughly lacking. The younger brother disobeyed his father to get his money, going his own way. The older brother obeyed him to get his money, but found himself resentful and striving, both trying to earn their identities, but neither seeming to find contentment. I hope you can see the parallel that both traditional and modern ways of identity formation are flawed. So, where do we go to find our true selves? To the gospel, to the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel tells us, firstly, that the basis of our identity is Jesus' performance, not ours. It is the only identity which is received, not achieved. We don't have to earn validation through acts of courage and sacrifice, as in the traditional view of identity, or like the older son, earn approval from our dutiful hard work and obedient meeting of the expectations of others. Nor do we need to determine our own path, rejecting tradition as we go on a great search for self-discovery, as in the modern view of identity, illustrated by the younger son. Our identity, is freely given to us. In the opening chapter of John's gospel, John makes a clear statement of God's purpose in sending Jesus. He came so that, verse 12, all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I like the message translation of this verse. Whoever did want him, who believed he was, who he claimed and would do what he said, he made to be their true selves, their child of God selves. Jesus came so that we could know our true identity as children of God, and that invitation is offered to anyone who will receive him. And it's not about our merit, what we do or don't do. Our salvation is not dependent on us. It is true that salvation is rescue from the consequences of our disobedience to God does have to be earned. It does. But we don't earn it. Jesus did it for us on the cross. Jesus was treated as we deserve so that we are now treated as he deserves. And what does Jesus deserve? He deserves God's infinite approval and love. And that's what we have through Jesus. Not because we earned it, but because Jesus did it for all of us. The basis of our identity is provided by Jesus' performance, not ours. And secondly, the ultimate validator is God, not us. Returning to the parable of the two sons, let's look firstly at the younger son, Luke 15 and verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Finding himself... Outcast, alone, and impoverished, this son was hoping to be given a job as a servant. He didn't expect any direct access or relationship with his father, who he had disrespected and hurt by his actions. But look at how the father responds, verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His father was evidently longing for his return was probably spending time every day searching the horizon for any sign of his son. His father saw him. As he saw his ragged clothes and emaciated body, he saw his boy and was filled with compassion for him. It doesn't say his anger rose within him, but his heart melted as he saw his bedraggled son coming home. He ran to his son. In that culture, Only children and servants ran. It was seen as thoroughly undignified for an older man to lift the edge of his robe, bearing his legs, and run. It may have been because he couldn't wait to get to him, but it may well have been that he wanted to get to him before the neighbors began to scorn and punish him and shame him for the disgraceful thing he had done to his father. Then he threw his arms around him and kissed him. Wow. Rather than scolding him for frittering away his inheritance, he shows him incredible affection. The son begins to apologize. And then, verse 22, but the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Robes were usually worn by noblemen and princes and signified position. The best robe speaks of conferring the ultimate dignity. Put a ring on his finger. Perhaps it was a signet ring with a family crest, symbolizing the father's authority. And sandals on his feet. Slaves were typically barefoot, and so sandals, or any footwear for that matter, were a mark of a free person. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. So the father holds back nothing in his welcome. He gives him the best. This calf would have been reared for a really special occasion. And so the younger son, who's gone off and done his own thing, wasted his inheritance and returned, tail between his legs to ask to be a servant, maybe, in his father's house, is affectionately welcomed by his father, given clothes worthy of the child of a nobleman, and a party is thrown in his honor. Wow. Let's have a look at how the father treats the older son. Remember, he stayed at home and he's worked diligently, looking after the family business, working in the fields, and became so angry at how the younger son is welcomed home that he refused to join the party. And so, verse 28. So his father went out and pleaded with him. This father is amazing. I have two adult sons and although they get along really well now, there were moments, occasional moments, in their teenage years, when maybe they did have a bit of a scuff, and sometimes I'd just be tempted to leave them to it, you know, just let them sweat it out between them. This father could have just left the older son outside stewing in his anger, but he loves him so much he is compelled to reach out. This would have been very unusual in that culture where traditionally sons obeyed fathers, and fathers withheld affection and certainly would never plead with someone junior to themselves verse 29 but he answered his father look all these years i've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders yet you never even you you never gave me even a young goat so that i could celebrate with my friends he probably never asked because he had this Strange relationship with his dad. I'm sure he, his father would have given him that goat. But when this son of yours, who squandered with your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. He's angry. He cannot even refer to him as his brother, but describes him as this son of yours. The father's response, verse 31: My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, he puts it back onto him, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. His response is, again, amazing. He's so kind and gentle to his angry older son. He calls him my son, an affectionate reminder of who he is. You are always with me. I'm available to you all the time and everything I have is yours. Nothing is withheld from you, you are my son, I love you. In this parable we see that the father's response is effectively the same for both of his sons. They've both done wrong, one squandering his inheritance, the other acting resentfully towards his brother, but the father passionately loves them both. Jesus intends us to understand that the father in this story represents God. And the parable reminds us that we don't need to look for anything external for our validation, nor do we have to look inward for our self-worth. Our ultimate validation comes from our heavenly father. How he sees us is the ultimate validation. And as sons and daughters of God, he sees us as perfectly righteous and more valuable than anything in the universe. I love Charlie Mackesy's sculpture of this parable, which we've looked at this morning. The way the son is totally leaning into his father in a pose that suggests he's physically exhausted, come to the end of himself, and the father's look of love and affection for his son just really captures well what Jesus is trying to show us. We live in a time when people are confused and hurting about their identities, but we do have good news to speak into our culture. This parable is a great example of how we might approach this question. Who am I? Well, we are loved by our Father in heaven. Today's confused assertion, which I quoted earlier in the Times article, I am who I say I am, is turned right way up as we experience relationship with our heavenly Father through Jesus. I love the song, Who You Say I Am, which we sang earlier. I'm a child of God, yes I am. I am chosen, you are for me. I am who you say I am. I don't need to navigate and decide my identity in this confusing cultural swirl. I am who God says I am. I am a child of God. He's adopted us as his children and conferred on us all the privileges and identity of sons and daughters. In Jesus, we inherit inherit his righteousness as ours. In God, the Father's arms, we know that we are deeply loved. In the closeness of his spirit, we're being changed into his likeness and empowered, strengthened, and authorized to live out the incredible richness of everything that identity contains. It is in relationship with God that we find our true self. As we saw earlier from John 13, he has made us to be our true selves, our child of God selves. There's an invitation for all of us this morning to take a moment to consider again, where are we finding our identity? Some of us may have been placing our identity in our career or our sexuality or our relationship status or something else. And today really is just an opportunity to recalibrate, to come back into the loving arms of our Father and to discover maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, our identity as His child. And it's from here and only here that we are best placed to live out our career, our sexuality, our relationships. It's from here and only here that we are best placed to reach out to the culture around us and share the good news of Jesus with this world. There are people in our lives. There are people who come here for the first time every week. In fact, you may be here for the first time today who are longing to figure out who they really are, what their life is truly about. And we have the privilege and opportunity to welcome them with an embrace that conveys the love of the Father, to listen to them with the grace and mercy of Jesus. And encourage them with the warmth of the Spirit as they discover their true and wonderful identity in Jesus. And when it comes to conversations about sexuality and relationships, what would it look like if we changed the conversation? Rather than talking about morality, rights and wrongs, to find a way of talking about identity first. Because each of us know people whose lives would be transformed if they came to realize that first and foremost, they are a child of God. Throughout this series, Jesus' words in John 10.10 have been on the screen behind us. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. We live in a culture that tells us that relationships and sex and being yourself as you decide are the way to a fulfilled life. But the reality is that we are individually created by the designer and creator of humankind, who loves us with a passion beyond our imagining, who wants to release us into the adventure of living out his purposes and to experience life in all its fullness as his children. Should we stand?